Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, someone a lot of you aren't going to know, but someone I think you should definitely keep an eye on. Member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, representing the 27th Middlesex District, Erica Utterhoven. Erica, how are things? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Well, now that Biden is officially president... Where do you yep. see progressives going from here? Well, um, yeah, it's a very today's a very exciting day to you know finally have the um, occupier of the White House removed. But I think um, you know in terms of where progressives have to go, we've got a long way to go, right? Um, I think especially now with the COVID crisis, um, even before the COVID crisis, you know we had an issue in terms of a big issue around just the complete. Um, gutting, right, of our public services, whether that's, you know, public schools, transportation, addressing the climate crisis, um, as well as ensuring housing for all, um, all the kind of basic needs that we need to ensure that every, you know, one of us has has access to. And I think that's something that, you know, we have a long road ahead to be fighting for. Um, I mean, particularly locally here in Massachusetts, too, there's a lot of push to, right, take away funding and, and essentially privatize our public transportation, which is, which would be atrocious. So I think that those are sort of the things that I think are ahead of progressives right now. Um, and I think coming out of this crisis, um, it's sort of a one, it's, the need is even deeper than ever before. Um, but also it's sort of clarified, right. To a lot of people that, you know, housing is a human right, right. Healthcare is a human right. And we need to ensure that those are actually, you know, human rights we provide rather than things that, you know, either drive people into bankruptcy or, or going into massive amounts of debt. So I think that's, that's really like a, a pretty big road ahead of us um, in terms of, you know, now that we have a, a different administration in the white house. Why do you think that the term socialism is such a dirty word in the United States and really not even <laughs> the United States, it goes yeah. North America whole because even even up here in Canada, where I am, a lot mm-hmm. of our policies are very democratic socialist, yet that word mm-hmm. socialist still gets people people <laughs> going. So what do you yeah. think it is about that word that still irks people? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's funny because I don't have a great answer to that because I do think it's also partly generational. Um, I only say that because, you know, I ran as a democratic socialist, just flat out as the first line on my website, you know, Twitter, everything. Um, and it honestly never was an issue in my district. However, I mean, I'll also say, I mean, I had one voter bring it up um, and she ended up voting for me. So, you know, I mean that, you know, she, she thought it was an issue at first. And then when I, I talked to her about what it means to me and what it you know, can mean for her, you know, she was totally, um, you know, to your point, right. Had that reaction you described and then, you know, flipped over. Um, but like, um, I say that because I think also my district is very young. We have the median district, you know, median age is 30, right? So I think particularly people who did not grow up with the Cold War, right, and the Red Scare, um, I think that is something that probably colors a lot of sort of the anti-socialism propaganda, if I had to guess. Um, but, you know, when I, as a millennial and, you know, with so many people who came out to support my campaign and, and vote for me, you know, being millennials or Zoomers, um, that has like actually been a, a very much a positive thing. They were like, oh, okay, I know that you're actually, you know, putting my, you know, human rights before markets, right? And before all the other kind of like economic growth arguments um, that we hear in sort of a new liberal society. And so 
to to me it was actually quite helpful to run as a democratic socialist. Um, but I understand that you know that that isn't the case everywhere in in the country, obviously. Um, and that I think that there has been a lot of you know negative propaganda. What's what's funny though, and I'll just give another example of this kind of similar to that conversation I had with the one voter who who. I took issue to it. Um, you know, we see things like Bernie Sanders on like Fox News, you know, like, um, uh, you know, these kind of town halls, right? And he, he says, what I want is I want healthcare for all. And everyone's like applauding, you know, on Fox News. Um, and so it's just, it's funny because I think the word has been sort of twisted, right? And we've seen this happen with a lot of words and, you know, socialism is one. I think feminism over, you know, that's been reclaimed, but there was a period, right, in the past, at least in my lifetime, where, that was like a dirty word. You were a whiny woman, you know, or whatever the narratives were if you, if you talked about feminism. And I think it's a similar course that takes place with socialism because there is just a, you know, a massive, uh, you know, there is a clear and loud constituency, I think, across uh, all capitalist societies that are vehemently against socialism because it will hit their bottom line, right? And I, I say that as in for people who are the, you know, some of the most wealthy um, people in at least the United States, they're vehemently against that, right? They're all about talking about, you know, oh, we got to bring racial, just as an example, racial justice in our public schools, and we need to do, you know, all these amazing things. Like, oh, no, if I'm going to have to pay additional, you know, taxes to ensure that our schools are funded equitably, regardless of your class, race, or zip code, right, that's, like, totally off the table. So I think that's something that, um, you know, I think it's intentional that there is this, you know, narrative against the word socialism, because when you explain it to people, right, um, the average person is quite, quite for it. There's really um, very few of like voters, right, who are opposed to that idea. I think they've sort of bought into narratives around, you know, the need to structure our lives around markets that feels like a necessity or like a moral obligation, right, rather than a choice that we're making um, as a society to put our needs first. So that's that's my take on the, the socialism question. Well, you've spent most of your life in school, really, a, a lot of uh-huh. it in higher education. Would you say that it's because of the education system and there really is just not this education on all sides of how things could be governed? And frankly, oh. governing yeah. in general, do you, do you think that education is doing enough in the United States and even North America in general to bring mm-hmm. these other sides of the coin to light? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it's funny you say that because from my own personal <laughs> perspective, it's, it's funny because, I mean, I used to be uh, in my early 20s, like fully bought into like neoliberal, you know, economics. And I've come out of that from studying more, you know, economics, essentially realizing like, oh, these systems, like, you know, this is all, um, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of, I guess I should say, intention around framing right our economic courses to to be centered around markets rather than you know things like externalities i have a lot i mean i could go on about just kind of the issue with our our education at least particularly in terms of like economics as a field um but i think your question is something to you know even bigger than that right which is around like civics and, and how we teach right especially at the like k through 12 and and, and of course you know, higher ed levels around um you know governance and i think um, I mean, the short answer is that, yes, I think we have to do more, right? We're not doing enough, right? Especially, you know, one of the big issues that I'm a supporter of is ensuring that 16 and 17-year-olds are able to vote in municipal elections. I think it's really critical that we, we teach civics, right, intentionally in high school, teach about, 
democracy not as a given, right, but as something that we need to fight for or need to continue fighting for, not something that we fought for once and we're kind of, you know, all set with. Um, and I think that, you know, practicing, right, like going to, to vote and all that is something that we, you know, we've seen worked, um, particularly at the high school level. Um, and I think the other side of it is that there's, I think, a need and I don't want to put it on public education because I think it started outside of public education, but there is a very um, intentional and powerful narrative, at least in the United States, that says, you know, government just doesn't work. So, like, let's defund it, right? Like, let's take away funding. And that's basically like, the, you know, Ted Cruz says that, or the senator from Texas very clearly. Um, but I think on many different levels throughout the Democratic and Republican Party, uh, or sorry, the Democrat and Republican Party, um, that narrative rings true that we just, we just, we need the markets to solve things. The government's inefficient. They're, you know, it's so broken and all that. And like, you know, the reality is, um, corporations are very broken and no one, you know, people treat corporations like, you know, individual and identity, you know, uh, I should say individual cases, right? Like this particular corporation is broken, but no one would say corporations in general are broken. But for some reason, when we talk about different bodies of government, you know, it's just like a reinforcing of everyone. Everything's just totally um, going to mess it all up and be super inefficient when that's actually not, that's not true in my, my view. And I don't think that's, that's historically accurate. I think it's the narrative that's sort of caught on um, stemmed from, you know, frustrations with not getting what we want, um, you know, at various points. And I don't think that's a symptom of government not working. It's a symptom of, you know, how democratic society works. So, um, so I think in that context, right, given that that narrative is, is so powerful right now, yes, I think, you know, we need to sort of adjust our public education and schooling to, to counter that, right? And, like, I think we do that to some extent with history and social studies, but um, clearly, you know, not enough. And I think another side of it, too, that I think is so important that you cannot um, – I guess disaggregate, I should say, from, you know, the issue around, you know, teaching democracy and civics is that it's also a racial justice and, and women's and LGBTQ and class issue, right? That democracy is sort of the ultimate kind of, um, you know, one person, one vote. We each have a vote, right? And it's, it's been heavily tied into, um, you know, racial justice, gender justice, LGBTQ, indigenous people's justice movements. Um, is like fighting for that right to to shape our our governing bodies, right? Um, and I think that is not taught sufficiently enough, and we have a lot of work to do here in terms of um, you know having anti-racist education to start as one, right? Um, and to teach that history uh, more clearly because we do teach it in this very like you know oh you see yeah then this happened and now it's good and that's not true, right? It's a constant struggle, and I think that's something why you know it's part of the reason why so many of the um, organizers I've had the incredible honor of working with, um, you know, our, our high school students, our middle school students who are like, this isn't working, right? They see the climate crisis. They see what's happening to our democracy and they're not just kind of taking what they learned in school at face value. Um, and I think it's our, you know, responsibility to adjust our, <laughs> you know, schooling to what they're, what they're seeing rather than this sort of like isolated, um, you know, just like, let's talk about the past, like it's a given type way we teach. So that's just kind of my take on, I guess, you know, public education and how we inform um, people. But I think, you know, young people have gotten it right. <laughs> you know, it's a question of us, yeah. 
do you think the young people are doing enough right now? Do you think more of them should be running for office? More of them should be coming up with mm-hmm. w- with things like the Sunrise Movement? And yeah. should they be doing more right now? Are Are you actually hopeful within the young community right now? Oh, I am so hopeful with our young young community. Yes. Um, and I think, yes, I, I, I think one of the things, it's not so much, I wouldn't say it as young people need to do more, but I think young people should actively reclaim spaces that is rightfully theirs. Um, I think there is a kind of, you know, I actually face this with my own race, right? So I'm, I'm actually 34. I think people assume I'm in my twenties sometimes, but regardless of that, you know, I did get this narrative of like, oh, are you really experienced enough? You know, and I think that's both, both, you know, based on gender and, and racial identity. But, you know, oh, are you really, you know, do you really understand this community? Do you, you know, I mean, do you know, do you really have the chops to do this? Um, and, you know, we don't say that about like, you know, people we're used to seeing in power, right? Or like identities we're used to seeing in positions of power. But what was so funny about that was I'm older than the median age of my district, right? Like I'm actually not you know, someone a little younger than me would have been more representative of this district. And yet, you know, for very long, right, the two representatives that we had um, representing here were over 65. So, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, also the case with city council, you know, they're older and all that. So I think, you know, there's a point, there are these narratives that pull people, pull young people back from, from taking power when actually their voice is needed now more than ever. I think their voice is generally always needed. And when you look at kind of the big movements in our in our history, right, like young people come with both the analysis and courage to address, right, what is what they're seeing and the problems they're seeing with a fresh set of eyes that I think as one gets unfortunately older, right, we start, and I, I see this happen to me too, where I start to like, you know, be like, well, that's just a broken system. It is what it is. And you need sort of that courage to say, no, we're not accepting that. And I think that's where, um, you know, I think young people, particularly this generation, are doing above and beyond at least what I did when I was their age, that's for sure. Um, I think they have been thrust in through crisis, right, to step up, which I feel mixed things about how, you know, I think a lot of Sunrisers make really um, compelling and moving cases about how, in a sense, their childhood is being taken away from them because they have to step up into leadership so young and so soon because of the failure of previous generations to protect them. Um, and I think the climate crisis is one where that is really tangible. Um, and I think, you know, just to give an example right now, I mean, hopefully this will change in the next uh, few weeks, but, you know, Massachusetts has not passed a significant law addressing the climate crisis since 2008. So I, I like gave that fact to a, a sunrise, you know, workshop um, for sunrise activists. And literally there was someone in that crowd who said, I was, three years old then. So you've done nothing in my entire lifetime to stop this, right, at the, the Massachusetts state level. So, um, you know, I think that's the, that's the kind of tension that we're seeing. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I believe we, we need to have more young people in power. I think it's um, unfair that they have to kind of, in a sense, disrupt their, what, you know, was something we all took for granted previous generations before to enjoy high school, right, enjoy university, and all these things. And now they're like, well, I can't focus in class because I know the climate crisis is, is coming. And that's a real experience. I think that they're, we've, we've put them through. And so, um, but I'm, I'm eager to take down, right. Those narratives and barriers that prevent young people from, from taking power. Cause when you look at some of the incredible things, 
young organizers have done, whether that's, you know, I, I bring up Sunrise a lot, but, you know, March for Our Lives, right? Um, in Massachusetts locally, there was a, um, what was it? Um, I'm going to get the name, Students for Markey, um, which was, you know, the election for our U.S. Senator. Um, you know, they've done things that, I mean, that yeah, they ought, they ought to be running for office, right? They, they deserve it. They've done so much more in their short lives than many people have done in their lifetime, including, in, you know, incumbent, you know, sitting electeds, right? Um, so I, I believe that they have the right to, to reclaim <laughs> their space um, and that, you know, they've done more than I've, you know, seen at least in my lifetime a generation have to take on. Well, speaking of more than a lot have done in their lifetime, how do you feel about term limits? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned that because so right now the Massachusetts House removed term limits for the speaker. And so our previous speaker was the longest serving speaker in the entire history of the Massachusetts General Court. <coughs> so I thought that was a problem. Um, it feels like a, a, a you know move to consolidate power. Um, and I think, you know... I think generally it's 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 good to have at least in that it particularly where there's a lot of power, right? Um there's a reason why we have term limits for president. We don't want to have a, you know, decades long <laughs> you know, person running the country. It's the most powerful position in office. Um and I think the same, you know, applies at the state level in Massachusetts for speaker for sure. Um I'm a little to be honest undecided in terms of like term limits for things like you know, city council and, and low, you know, kind of lower positions, I should say, like in, in municipal or local government. Um, only because I, I know that, um, in Maine, they have term limits for certain spaces and that, you know, that it has sort of a pros and cons for it. So, you know, I think that when it's like you're a rank and file rep, like, gosh, I don't know, it's, it's, debatable i'd have to think about it more so i don't have like a clear answer for that i'm not opposed to it i just like i know that like there's sort of it doesn't go clear both ways but i think for very powerful positions right um i think that makes total sense that's like a no-brainer for me like you know president speaker of the house right governor um i think that that totally makes sense because of how much power you wield um so yeah you used to be an antitrust economist Mm-hmm. Are you a little worried about what corporations are doing right now during the pandemic? Does this scare you more than any other time with how big corporations oh, yeah. truly are getting? A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm scared for many reasons, um, but I'll say just a few. Um, so one is that, you know, in this crisis, right, at least in the United States, the failure for government to step in and to protect um, both households, um, individuals, and their livelihood, as well as small and local businesses, is a, you know, the, in, in the, if the, the government doesn't step in to protect them, because when someone goes bankrupt or a business goes bankrupt, right, in the midst of this global pandemic, it is not because, according to, like, regular, right, market um, arguments, that they went out of business because they made poor decisions, right? That's like the idea of like market efficiency, right? Is that if you like aren't good at running a business, you go out of business. And if you're good at it, you make a lot of money. Like that's the like moral logic of markets, right? That is not what's happening with this global pandemic straight up. Um, and so they're going out of business because of a global pandemic. Socialism for them, not for anybody else. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. 
100%, right. And, oh, talking about socialism for everyone else, if you look at the CARES Act, it is a massive bailout, right, for pass-through um, organizations and other, you know, essentially investors who made bad bets. Um, the CARES Act gives them more money than the CARES Act gave to state and local government. So to your point, right, that is literally socialism for, <laughs> for the wealthy and for no one else, right? So there's that piece, right, that the bailout money was um, incredibly unjust, right? And then the other side of it is that now you have local businesses and households and individuals either, you know, going under, right? Um, and then you have these large companies and investors who are going to buy up assets at rock bottom prices. And we saw this happen in the 2008 crisis. Um, and it happened you know, with the, the mortgage crisis in the United States. And this is an, a much worse version of that, right? I mean, this is a much more prolonged recession, right? People are literally like, unable to do business as usual. And now you're going to have the people, you know, the individuals. And I think individuals, because in the United States, it's, it comes down to like a few hundred people, right? With deep pockets, who are going to buy up their assets at rock bottom prices and make huge um, gains. Um, so it's an, inc you know, an incredible, you know, consolidation of wealth um, that we're going to witness coming out of this COVID pandemic because the government failed to, to intervene. And, you know, we ought to have intervened in the same way we intervened during the Great Depression, but we're not. And not only is it worse than what's happening in the Great Depression, you have this global health crisis, right? That makes it, in, you know, um, impossible to continue business as usual. And yet we're, we're not, you know, giving anyone the safety net that they deserve. So that's one really big concern I have um, around just consolidation of wealth or increased consolidation of wealth. And I'll say like that, you know, there's many ways that that's very visible. You know, one, I, I gave the local business example. Another one is on real estate. Um, so we're increasingly seeing, right, right here where I live in Somerville in Massachusetts, um, these billionaire landlords, right, essentially like these billionaire trusts that own like, you know, hundreds, instead of like, you know, uh, real estate being held by like individual families or, you know, or, or small property owners, it's increasingly getting consolidated to these, these giant um, billion dollar asset um, trusts or individuals who, who are investing in that. So that's, that's one thing that I'm incredibly concerned about. The second thing related to just antitrust that I'm concerned about too is like the big, when you look at the big profiteers of this crisis, um, you know, we're talking Google, right? Facebook, Amazon. Um, these are all tech companies that have held already before the COVID crisis and it's, it's gotten worse. Um, a monopolistic position, right? They literally are something that in, you know, it's a technological advancement that in a sense needs to be regulated like a public utility and it's not. And we're seeing the consequences of that, both in terms of invasion of privacy, right? The fact that they're able to profit off of knowing by the you know literal square meter of where everybody is and what ads to put in front of them. And um, in terms of, you know, what kind of things are people seeing when they open up Facebook or, or you know, open up their browser um, they have full control over that, and we're seeing kind of the consequences of, you know, political instability and, um, you know, radicalization here in the U.S., largely due to, like, failure um, for these, what are, you know, essentially, again, should be essentially public utilities um, being controlled by just, you know, a few, you know, essentially a corporation, right, which is a very different structure from, from um, controlling things democratically. So, um, that's one that I'm also incredibly concerned about, not only due to, you know, of course, the, the massive profits they've gained through the crisis, um, but, you know, largely, um, and I'm hopeful this will change, but 
our courts have failed to to regulate them, you know, in terms of antitrust law being implemented. I think the best case we've seen that is in Europe. Um, but in the United States, I mean, the Department of Justice has really kind of let them off the hook. And I understand from my work as doing antitrust economics, the models that we use to justify whether something can stay a monopoly or not are insufficient. Um, we are not, you know, judging enough information around what kind of market control they have or influence they have. And as a result, right, that's why we're seeing a dearth of um, funding to local press, right, and, and local, um, you know, local journalism um, as a result is a huge, you know, one of the many negative impacts of this as well as, again, the privacy and all that. So I, th those are my big concerns, particularly around monopolies. I think that both tech ones as well as the consolidation of wealth um, is, is a serious problem that I our law, our, you know, our legal system has failed to address. And I think we, we need to be, you know, vigilant about fighting for that, both at the grassroots level and at the legislative level. What are some of the biggest issues that you've noticed so far coming into office? And mm -hmm. what are you really hoping that you can accomplish within the first 100 days, mm -hmm. within the first year? Uh, the thing that I am very focused on as a legislator at the state level in Massachusetts is we need to have an equitable recovery um, from this crisis. Um, so just to share a little context, right? I mean, the United States is one of the most unequal, right? Both in terms of wealth and income in the world. Uh, Massachusetts ranks in the bottom fourth in terms of the inequality. We are the worst in terms of inequality in, the, in, the, in already an equal country, right? Um, and I think the other side of it too, that's interesting about Massachusetts is that, you know, if we were a country, which we're not, we're a state in the United States, but if we were a country, we'd be the fourth richest country in the world is Massachusetts. So, um, we as a state embody, right? So much of what is wrong with failed neoliberal policies, um, that, um, it's a massive, you know, all the different ways of like wealth transfer to the very few. And yet the, you know, dis investment of, of the, you know, so many communities in our state is, is very tangible. And so for me, like long-term, right, that is the thing we need to be fighting for. And I think immediately, right, that is where the impact of the COVID pandemic, I mean, we have some of the worst, you know, unemployment in the country. Um, we also have some of the worst racial disparities across, you know, take any issue of that's education, healthcare, out, you know, health outcomes, um, that's very prominent in terms of how the pandemic and the COVID crisis has hit our state. Um, so I think those are all things that, you know, I think the silver lining with this COVID pandemic is this understanding that we all deserve to to live our lives with dignity and, and that we need to be funding, right, these um, basic human rights for all. Um, when I say basic human rights, I mean, you know, housing, healthcare, education, transportation, all that. Um, and so I think that's that's been a, a dissent that we've taken as a state for the past two decades to increasingly be more, you know, for austerity, right? Giving, we've cut taxes more than any other state than Alaska, Arizona. Uh, I think we're the third worst since the late seventies. Um, and so we need to turn that tide. And I think that this spring, you know, the first hundred days of fighting to, to start to turn that tide in terms of a, you know, equitable recovery, but further, we need to continue to sort of, you know, change the way state government interacts um, and, and funds, right, these programs. Um, and a part of that is you can't, un you know, un uh, disaggregate again, right, from this issue around good democracy, right, and a healthy democracy. Because part of why this has gone on so long, too, in Massachusetts 
is that we don't have a healthy democracy. Um, our state government, um, while we have, you know, we, you know, we have relatively fair elections, like, you know, we don't have the same problems we've seen in other parts of the country. Um, democracy doesn't end at the ballot box, right? It continues with engaged citizens. It continues with, um, you know, regular people understanding what's happening at state government and having their voices heard and the ability to organize around those issues, right? That is all, all those mechanisms that are needed for a healthy democracy just do not exist in Massachusetts. And it starts with the fact that, you know, largely um, for almost all votes, especially, you know, including committee votes and as well as, you know, the very few floor votes we have, constituents don't know how we vote. We just don't know how, you know, people like me are voting on issues. And so it's impossible to hold your representatives accountable to that. And that's something that I've been, you know, pushing to change through my, you know, advocacy prior to coming as a state rep. And I, I you know, I'm dedicated to continue to change. Um, the other thing that we do too is that, you know, we, the reps don't even often sometimes know what they're voting on because we have so little time. You know, a bill will come out, we have four hours to file amendments and then we're voting on it the next day. There's no time to engage your constituents on that, right? There's no time to engage advocates on that. Um, and so that's another right problem where this, like, again, the healthy democracy piece kind of goes hand in hand um, with an equitable recovery in a, a world that's centered on, on people's needs rather than on, on profit. It's funny that you mentioned how quick things run in Massachusetts because did you get a chance to see Frederick uh, Wiseman's film City Hall about the Boston City Hall? I haven't. Frederick Wiseman's City Hall. I'm looking it up now. Yeah. So that's it, it's a four-hour documentary, and it pretty much gets you into the day in the life of City Hall in Boston. Mm. It is unlike anything that I've seen in a City Hall. Things things <laughs> are being run incredibly quick there. Do you do you think change can come from the from from you being there? Do you see a lot of your constituents? getting on getting onto this wavelength and in, in, in this page mm-hmm. that, that you were bringing forward oh i mean i i absolutely think so because i mean you know i ran on precisely what i just shared with you and you know um my race was a very hotly contested race um and yet you know we won with the largest margin of victory for a state rep race in the, in the state. So I think, you know, it was pretty clear. And, you know, we, it was a very, all the issues that I just shared with you around like good democracy and, you know, how we do things were all forefront. Um, and, you know, my, my opponent was very much like, you know, I'm going to work within the system, right. I'm going to work with the, the speaker. And I was like, this is not, that's not the, you know, we've, we've tried that for 30 years and I'm not interested in doing that. So I both, uh, not only does I believe my constituents believe in that because that is, that was articulated through the campaign, but also I have an obligation to follow through on that, right? Because I, I really fundamentally believe, you know, if you're going to run for office and run on a platform, you have a moral obligation to follow through on that platform. So in a sense, you know, I, I, I'm here to, to do exactly what my voters sent me to do. Um, and so I think that's, that's one piece. In terms of what can happen, right? I mean, I believe we can do that. Yes, I think that, you know, it was so funny. I was reading this book the other day um, because when I think of, you know, Beacon Hill in Boston, right, and in particular the State House, I mean, you know, I, I shared with you all the kind of problems we have. Um, and, and, you know, to add to it, right, it's an incredibly, you know, affluent neighborhood. You know, people of color cannot afford to stay there, right? It's all these problems that we have in, in downtown. And, you know, I was reading this book by Bettina Love um, called, you know, All We Want, oh, No, We Want to Do More Than Survive. Um, and she talks about how Beacon Hill was 
you know, the, the forefront of the abolitionist movement in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, and so it, it just, it was interesting to just read that history one, because a, I didn't know about it growing up here in Massachusetts. Um, but B, right. That, that is the potential, right. We can be, um, sort of whatever we, we strive to be. And I see sort of the, the disconnect, um, all the time with sort of how the state house operates and where, right. V- voters are right. Where constituents are, where organizers are, where people who are doing the hard work to, to, you know, effectuate change, there's just such a massive divide between that. Um, and I think that that's a divide that we, we are obligated to, to bridge. And we have to do that with both right inside the building as well as organizing outside. So, yeah, I fundamentally believe, I believe in the, the electorate and voters of Massachusetts that this is not the world they, they signed up for, but that they, you know, we have unfortunately let go of the steering wheel for a few, for, you know, few decades and that we're back to, to grab on and we're ready to, to change things. The IPCC has stated we pretty much have 10 years to fundamentally change behavior when it comes to climate change. Do you agree with that or do you think that we're kind of already past the point of no return at this point? Oh, I mean, I, I agree with the IPCC report. I trust the scientists over, you know, I don't have a climate, uh, <laughs> climate change background. Um, but yeah, I trust the science and I trust that we are going to have to make fundamental changes. And I trust that also the people are with us on those changes that need to happen. Um, and I think it comes down to, right. I mean, I believe in fighting for a green new deal. And I think, uh, one thing that's important to kind of remember, you know, when we say green new deal, it's based on, you know, FDR's new deal. Um, you know, the new deal wasn't like one bill and it passed and then suddenly, you know, all these things, all these awesome things came into play, right. It was over a decade, um, to fight for a, a restructuring essentially of our whole society, right. To implement things like social security. Like we did not have that before. Um, and it's, it's sad because, you know, through the FDR new deal, right. Universal healthcare, which is something, uh, very envious of, of our, our neighbors to the North of, um, you know, that was something that was almost came to fruition and didn't, um, you know, and that, you know, the, the consequences of that were, you know, living today, but, you know, I believe that we are, we are embarking on that same, similar kind of journey, but with climate crisis right now. Um, and it's a question of, you know, putting enough pressure on our, you know, electeds to make it happen. And, you know, people like me fighting from the inside as well. But I think, you know, there is a lot of, uh, a lot more to come if, if we don't turn things around fast enough. Um, you know, I know Sunrise talks a lot about, you know, the need for a general strike and we just shut down society until like a solution is put forth. I mean, that, I think those are real things we are going to have to grapple with because that like, to your point, that IPCC report, we're not here to get to hundred percent renewable by 20, you know, 90 or 2080. I mean, those were like no joke, right? The proposals that we used to have on the table in the state house and, you know, it's been pushed back to 2050, but it's just still not good enough. And we're still going to keep fighting for, for one that actually reflects right the science. And we need to do that. You mentioned uh, the racial issue earlier. Do you see mm-hmm. real change coming from the uprising in the streets? Oh, I see change um, in terms of the grassroots and organizing. I think um, a big part of racial justice, right, is for all of us, you know, black, brown, Asian, white, um, but especially white people, having to do a lot of difficult internal work to undo, you know, it, it is, it is, uh, I think the way that 
it's been described, right? The four eyes of oppression. And there's, you know, one, you need to undo the oppression that you carry in yourself. Um, that's the, you know, the um, internal oppression as well as, right, interpersonal, institutional, and ideological. Um, I've seen work done on that to some extent. And we've also seen, right, the white supremacist backlash. That's, we saw that last, you know, earlier this month. Um, and we continue to see that as, you know, we, there is pushes to defund the police, which I wholeheartedly support. Um, you know, the counter narratives that are coming out of that, right, it's it stemmed from the inability for, in a, you know, many individuals to do that work to kind of undo what is the original sin of our country. Um, so when I see change, I say, you know, I, I say that very cautiously because I see that with sort of the grassroots organizing and the, the political education that's happening on the ground. I think now more than ever, abolitionists have, have taken um, political power in a way that we haven't seen in so long, right, um, at least since half a century, um, which is all very exciting because, like, that is, you know, the history, too, with the civil rights movement that people forget about is that, you know, there was an institution of white supremacy that came down and, and beat that movement down. Right. And we have sort of a choice right now to kind of to come to that or, or actually keep moving forward. And, you know, it's my commitment that we need to be centered on racial justice and unarming, you know, white supremacy at all spheres of our life. It does not, it is not just limited to policing. Um, that is one very prominent piece, but you know, it's the case across all, all spheres, whether it's healthcare, education, transportation, equity, all that. Um, and so I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I think, um, I say this all cautiously because also the forces, right, of, of white supremacist backlash are real. Um, and we're going to have to take on those forces head on. Um, and I think we, we did to some extent with what happened in the Capitol and that, you know, we, we pushed back. I think it was unfortunate that we didn't do more to stand up to that. Um, but, you know, we are in a sense repeating history, right? This was exactly, I mean, it was no coincidence that the capital invasion or coup, I should say, um, you know, happened after we elected the first black senator in the South um, and the first Jewish senator in the South. Um, it was no coincidence that happened, you know, in response to the fact that we we're going to have our first Catholic, or sorry, no, we're going to elect a Catholic president and our first you know, multiracial black, you know, Southeast Asian vice president. Um, these are all, you know, tangible pushbacks, right, to organize, you know, people of color organizing and taking power, which we saw in Reconstruction, the Reconstruction era in the United States in the late 1800s, post-Civil War. Um, that is when, like, lynching became a thing, right? That is when we entered the Jim Crow era. And I think we're at this pivotal point now in our histories. Are we going to go to another half a century of a, a form of Jim Crow that has been, you know, modified and, and uh, assimilated to what is acceptable today? Or are we going to stand up to this kind of white supremacist um, uh, society that we, we inherited? Um, so I think that's where we're at right now. And I think that, you know, it's my role as, a, as an elected uh, to support that both the organizing as well as, you know, co-conspiring from the inside to ensure that we're fighting for policies that challenge like racist power. You're a Bernie supporter. I'm a Bernie supporter. He brought mm -hmm. so many people, he brought so many progressives mm -hmm. out and people that didn't realize that they were progressives in, into the fold. Yeah. How do we keep the momentum going? Oh, that's a great question. I'll say this about Bernie and his, you know, his campaign. Um, 
there's sort of two things that happened with his campaign. And I, I can just share on a personal note, like what happened with me. I mean, first was that he broke the spell of neoliberalism, right? He broke the spell and the dominant narrative in American politics that is a, you know, a, a narrative based in deficit thinking, right? The narrative that says, you know, well, oh, we can't have healthcare as a human right. Never mind the fact that every country, you know, does some form that's better, right? Massively better than what the United States does. He broke that kind of neoliberal spell. Um, that I think we were cast on for so many, for so many, um, for several decades. Um, so that was one thing that his campaign did. And I think the second thing that his campaign did that people don't talk about as much is um, around a shift that so many people were brought into the fold, not only to support him and, and vote for him, but I'm one of those people who not only was brought into the fold, but completely altered how I saw and positioned myself in the world. I mean, prior to Bernie's campaign, I was someone who, to just be very frank and honest, you know, I just was someone in the world that I was like, stuff's going to happen to me, and I just have to kind of carve out the best, you know, space in my in this world, and you know, get a good job and, and raise my family and do all those things, um, and just like things happen to me when it comes to like a global or like you know a societal level. I I, I just take those for granted. You know, people get elected and, and make decisions on my behalf, and Bernie's campaign completely flipped that upside down me and I think for, for thousands if not millions of people out there um, in that I shifted from being someone who stuff happened to me to someone who said I have a responsibility to build the world I believe in through organizing right through the political process um, I mean that was the major impact that Bernie's campaign had on my life I mean it made it so that it was unbearable for me to keep working, right? I mean, I love doing economic modeling, but I wasn't moving the needle on anything that I cared about. Um, I was just kind of, you know, anyone could have done my job. I'm not anyone, but you know, anyone with a training and, and whatever education we want to say. But like, the reality was that like, I couldn't bear keep being in spaces where we weren't actually moving towards stopping the climate crisis, right? Where we weren't moving towards ensuring that everyone had access to healthcare equitably or, or education equitably. Um, so I think that's something that Bernie's campaign and all the sort of like grassroots and, you know, various level campaigns. And I'll say like my campaign was very similar too. I mean, mo the lion's share of volunteers who came out on my campaign were from, you know, Bernie 2020's campaign, right? As well as like Our Revolution and DSA and Sunrise. Um, so for all those kind of additional, right, municipal, local races and state level races happening, um, I think that that shift happened for all of us, that we can't just kind of sit back and, and let things happen to us. So we need to, to take back our agency. Um, so I think that's sort of the long lasting effect that, you know, Bernie's presidency and his, his run had on, on our country. Um, and I think the way we keep kind of that momentum going is that we keep, um, you know, or, you know, his campaign was rooted directly in the issues. It, he made it as, you know, as much as like, I think people enjoyed his personality and all that, he made it about the issues, right? It wasn't about personality. It wasn't about sort of this elite, elitist notion that, you know, one person is going to save us all. Uh, and, and, you know, in, on the right, right, that becomes a demagogic thing, right? Like that's Trump, he's a demagogue. But instead it was rooted on these issues that we all care about. And we've seen these issues continue to be the, the central platform um, that we're, we're fighting for. So I think that's really the, how we keep this momentum going is that we have to keep it about people's lived experiences and the issues and how we need to be fighting for those issues and base, you know, rooting those in, in people's lived experiences. And I'm seeing that happen across, you know, state and local government. It's incredibly, 
exciting. And I think that's been, you know, some of the, the best, you know, thing that came out of that, that campaign. Even before Bernie, when did you start realizing that you were focusing more and more on, on politics and trying to get the news of politics and where things were going and, and trying to be engaged? Or was it not until Bernie? Yeah, that's a great question. No, so I was like a passively, like, you know what I mean, like engaged on things. I mean, I remember my first kind of political moment was the Iraq war. Um, that wasn't why well, I was in high school then. Um, I just thought it was so awful what we were doing. I mean, just as a high school student, um, I think what changed was like, I didn't know how to channel that anger and like frustration, right. To something productive. And I think that, you know, I I'll also say too, like before Bernie, you know, beyond the Iraq war, which was, I think a big, you know, moment, at least for people around probably my age in, in the United States. Um, and just like the harm we caused as a country, right, to the world and continue to do. And then, you know, once you learn about the Iraq war, you can't unlearn, right, all the things that happened in Central and South America and across the globe. Um, it's all pretty, it's, you know, American imperialism is really horrific. Um, but I think beyond that, right, I mean, they're following that, we witnessed, you know, the complete meltdown of our financial system. Um, and then a decade of, of protest, in a sense, from, you know, 2010 onward with you know, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, right? Um, the, you know, March for Our Lives. Um, and I think through all those events, right, leading up to when I, you know, was employed by Bernie's campaign, um, I, you know, I, I increasingly started to question and, and challenge, right, these, you know, for me, my background was in economics, but challenging those economic models and being like, this, this is missing a very <laughs> critical part of the human experience. Um, and I think all those movements kind of taught me over the years, like why, what, what is so wrong. And I think what flipped for me on the Bernie campaign was, all right, these things are wrong, but there's something we can do about it. And I'm going to do something about it. I think that was the main, you know, like, I think there was kind of always this kind of stewing, you know, political learnings right over the years and, and being part of some of those, those movements. Um, and I think that's, you know, a largely a lot of those movements were incredibly successful with, you know, making, I mean, wealth and income inequality wasn't an issue until Occupy Wall Street happened. Right. You know, people didn't understand police and, and racial um, racialized brutality, right. And state sanctioned violence against black and brown people until black lives matter, you know, came up. Right. Like it was, it was, you know, there for folks who understood it, but it was not at the forefront of our, you know, the American conscious consciousness. Um, so I think that I'm certainly a, a product of all of those, those movements as well. And like that, you know, those movements are what created who I am today. And I, I owe it to those movements to carry that on. Well, since we are the film cult podcast, I am curious, what kinds of movies, music, books, do you find yourself gravitating towards all the time? Or do you even have time for anything anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, no, I try to read regularly. I think it's really important um, to to read, mostly because that's when I get my best ideas. Um, but I am gravitating towards. I mean, I'm looking at my books right now. Um, so I am incredibly inspired by abolitionist writers and and movement builders. You know, Charlene Carruthers. Uh, I mentioned Bettina Love earlier. Um, I think that those, right. And then, um, sorry, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is another one. Oh my gosh. I mean, they're, yeah, the work they've done, right. Again, before I was 
awake, <laughs> right? It's, it's so important. Um, and so, yeah, those, those are the ones that I'm really gravitating towards right now. Another book I'm reading, um, particularly, you know, in terms of uh, building up the labor movement, you know, in, in the United States, um, a book by Stephen Greenhouse, Beaten Down and Worked Up, Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. That, was, that is a book I highly recommend. I'm just whizzing right through it. So, yeah, I, I generally, those are the kind of books I'm inspired to, to read and, and learn. And it really gives me energy because, you know, this works hard. Um, there's a lot of naysayers, right? Um, these institutions are in place to, to stop us, right? So you need to kind of keep drawing inspiration from, you know, the generations and the current generation, the generations before us and the current generation and future generations that are going to continue to fight for justice. Do you think that the labor unions are becoming stronger right now? And, and do you see a hopeful future for them even within the mm. next five years, or do you think mm-hmm. to get to where we actually need to be, it's going to be a 10, 20 year plan? Um, no, I have a lot of hope for the labor movement. I mean, as you probably know, I'm, a, I'm also a product of, you know, the carving, the busting of unions and carved out American worker is, is the story of my mom. Um, she had a, you know, a union job from a contract in the seventies. And, you know, I watched growing up as, you know, one by one, her colleagues get carved out and, you know, the union get completely busted. Um, and, um, so I have a personal, just like I owe it to the labor movement to be a strong voice for labor. Um, but also on a, just like a movement level, right. I think it's something that we are, our people are waking up to. And I think that's one of the many ways, right. Both, the decade of pro- protests and, you know, Bernie's, you know, breaking the neoliberal spell has brought back unions to the forefront and kind of reclaimed these narratives that were incredibly toxic about labor movements and building them back up. So I think that's something that's um, really critical. And I think, you know, we saw even just earlier this month, right, ACLU's workers um, unionized in the United States. Um, Google has now formed a union, which is exciting. I think that, you know, they are, they are continuing to build up and I think we need to continue to, to do um, labor organizing and to protect the unions that are in place. And that, that does fall both on the courts and the legislature. And those are certainly issues that are, are forefront for me as well. Well, Erica, thank you so much for coming on here. And yeah. I, I wish you nothing but luck running, running the 27th <laughs> Middlesex district. I, I hope to see great things from you and <laughs> Do, do you do you have after this? Do you have any aspirations to to go even higher in government? Oh no, I'm focused on where I'm at right now. I have not been able to think beyond a week, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know what those aspirations are. But for me, you know, I want to serve my constituents well, and you know, we've got a lot of work ahead of us in the next, you know, the two year term that I, I serve. So that's sort of what at the forefront for me, but I appreciate your, your kind words and wishes. And it was a wonderful to, to have me. Uh, it was wonderful to, to do this with you with a podcast. And I appreciate you having me. Of course. Thank you again so much. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. And this concludes our broadcast day.